With Stephanie Holan. In and out of the courtroom, Stephanie seamlessly navigates the legal world of criminal defense, family law, and more. And now, your host, Stephanie Holan. Good afternoon. Stephanie Holan. You're listening to Total Disclosure on On Air Live. You can tune in on onairlive.com. And today I brought a guest with me, fellow attorney and friend, Paul Wingo. Hi. And Today, we are going to talk about um, what I've termed divorcey things for those of you either thinking about going through a divorce or who find themselves in the midst of a divorce. We're going to talk about the issue of human trafficking and how it ties to immigration, which is one of those hot topics that we keep hearing about in the news. And we're going to try to clear up some of the mystery around that for you. You know, I actually hit the... Sorry, I'm jumping in here. This is uh, Stephanie's producer. I, I hit the wrong switcher coming into this episode, and everybody got a nice shot of Paul dancing at the very beginning of the Did show. Did you really? Well, this is why Paul is my friend. And <laughs> also party. an awesome... That's right. 30-second dance party. Yeah. So... little little treat for uh, the audience. You're welcome. One of the things um, that I hear the most from clients who are going through divorce, um, and, and it's not even anything they vocalize, is that... They come in and it's very disorganized. Now, normally, normally people have known that things are leading up to the relationship deteriorating or they know that they're on their way to divorce. But then I also have clients who are literally blindsided and served papers and they find that the other person wants to go through a divorce. One of the issues that we have a current lawmaker in office talking about proposing is taking away the no-fault divorce option in Texas. Okay, let me explain what a no-fault divorce is. It's called insupportability. And basically it means we just can't live together anymore. We're going to rip each other apart. This was a benefit when it came around because Texas hasn't always had that. Normally you had to fall under one of six causes, which was uh, we can't have kids. Um, They were crazy. They were inebriated. They didn't have the capacity to enter into a marriage contract. They were actually married already. So the marriage became void. When they introduced a no-fault divorce into the Texas system, what it was for is because in order to get a divorce, you had to prove that there was some mistake or some wrong done. So let's say that you're a victim of domestic violence, husband or wife. How do I go about proving that that person is domestically violent? It's not like they do that in front of everybody else. Most domestic abusers are, are very charming. It's something that you hear over and over again. Nobody would ever guess that was going on. And then if you're the person who's domestically abusive, normally one person was at home and one person wasn't at the time that they rolled out the no-fault divorce. So if I was a wife who was being domestically abused and I stayed home with my kids and my husband worked and he was domestically abusive... Well, how am I supposed to get money for a divorce? And how in the world am I supposed to prove that he's domestically abusive? And it created a very unsafe, and then it created a very lengthy process. Because think about how much you would have to prove to prove that the person that you were with was um, psychologically and emotionally abusive. And this is before we had cell phones. This is before all of the cameras. It was just so complicated to prove fault in a divorce. And so they came up with a no-fault divorce because it cut down time and expenses. And we actually have somebody, and I'm just going to say it, he's wrong. He's just flat out wrong. He wants to take that option away. He wants to do it because he wants to 
increase the willingness of people to work on their problems, which I can understand and appreciate. But the problem is the insubordability claim gives people the right to say, hey, we're getting a no-fault divorce and it takes away that need to prove. So that's the first thing. So people can file for a no-fault divorce. Now, if you're the person who's blindsided and you get hit with this, I'm filing for a no-fault divorce and you had no idea it was coming, you often find yourself in shock. Okay, first, that's normal. Second, a lot of times they're like, well, I don't want it. Under a no-fault divorce, it doesn't matter. Eventually, the divorce will be granted. It doesn't matter how long you try to prolong it. It's, it's going to end if the other person wants to end it. But in Texas, we like to try to let people stay together. So let's say somebody goes and files for divorce. In Texas, you have to wait 60 days before a divorce can be granted. It cannot be granted before the 61st day. So a lot of times people come to an attorney and they're, I hate this woman. She cheated on me. I have proof. There are videos. I found her Snapchats, blah, blah, blah. I want a divorce now. Well, even if I filed that second against the other person, I still have to wait 60 days. Now that 60 days is supposed to be a grace period to see if you really want to get divorced. Remember how I was talking about deferred adjudication where if we're trying to decide if we really want to say you're a bad person? Right. Okay, this is the 60 day grace period where we decide whether or not you actually want to get divorced. And so we give you some time. Now, once you file for divorce, people are like, oh, we can go to mediation. We can, they throw all these legal words out. I'm going to give you some advice. If you get hit with a divorce or you're thinking about divorcing, you need to start planning ahead of time. Because oftentimes I have one client who's like, well, I don't have access to the bank information. Well, how am I supposed to know what your fair share of a marital estate is? Texas is community property, which means if you didn't get it by a gift, if somebody didn't die and leave it to you, and if it didn't descend through your family like the family farm went down to you, then that's community property. If it's not one of those three things, then half of whatever you made from the date that you got married is the other person's. That means that they have half of a right to the retirement. Paul, you can chime in because I know I'm forgetting about something like your retirement, your RRA, your bank funds, your cars, your vehicles, anything past that point of marriage in Texas is 50% the other person's. As my job as your attorney is to advocate for you to get that 50%. It's nothing personal towards the other person. I'm not trying to penalize them. I'm sure your husband slash soon-to-be ex-wife is a pain in the ass. Most of them are. I would say the same thing about my ex-husband. He would say the same thing about me. That's not uncommon. But if one person has all of that paperwork and you come to me, it really renders my job difficult. And then it actually ends up making it more expensive on the client because then I have to send something called discovery. And I know I've talked about that before. Definitely. That's where I get to send all of those really fun, boring questions Anything to the other person think, saying, yeah. give me all of your Facebook accounts and your logins and your Snapchat account and your login. <sighs> Everything you thought no one could get to. <laughs> Everything you thought that nobody would ever see all of those yeah. conversations you had on the hidden screen. Guess what? I know how to find them. And so do people that I pay know how to find them. So then I request all of that because then I'm looking for some way to find the bank accounts or some way to prove faults. Because then if I can prove fault on top of a no-fault divorce, so not only are we divorcing, but I can prove that you cheated on me because adultery was a cause, I can get disproportional set of the assets. But then I have to keep looking so far. And so when you start adding those fault reasons on top, you end up with a very costly, very lengthy divorce. And then they're small humans. I'm telling you, I went through a divorce when my daughter was two and a half years old. And I can tell you, this is not the lawyer in me speaking. This is the mom in me speaking. My biggest fear was, first off, 
I lost the second income. So then single mom, one income paying for all of the bills. Everybody who splits up finds themselves in that situation. Now you don't have that other piece and it's a readjustment. But because I made less, my ex-husband was an engineer and I was a teacher at the time. There was a pay discrepancy and he got to do all these fun things with my daughter and I was scared to death my daughter was going to love my ex-husband more because they did more fun things. And when it was with mom, we were at home and yeah, we made sprinkle pancakes and we did things, but it just makes you feel as an adult, like you're the suckier parent and you're scared to death. The kid is going to love the other parent. And then parents start using those children as pawns and they don't even realize they're doing it because the other parent probably never took them to six flags and on all these trips beforehand, but it's the same fear in them. So they overcompensate. When you start doing that, it's not just psychologically damaging to you because you're so scared about it, psychologically damaging to the kid because that child, if you were still in the same house, would be benefiting from both incomes. So when people complain about child support, I'm like, look, if you hadn't divorced, those kids would still be getting to their practices. Those kids would still be getting their uniforms. They'd be doing whatever. Just because you guys can't live in the same house together, we don't punish the kids. And then also when we're giving all of the kids these things, for everybody out there listening, it's a very normal feeling to feel scared that they're going to care for the other parent. When you start fighting with the kids, you also you prolong it. Me? I promise, Paul. <laughs> I promise. I'm scared. I know. Um, I've gotten the warning that we only have a minute left, so I will come back and finish my conversation on divorcee type things and some advice on what to do, and then I will let Paul take over on immigration. More of Total Disclosure with Stephanie Holland is next. Captain of prison, in a prison of With Stephanie Holman on On Air Live. You shine like a star. You know who you are. Everything Thank you, you for tuning back before. in to Total Disclosure. I'm Stephanie Holman. I'm here again with Paul Wingo. I just want to close up on some of the divorce points before I move into the topic of immigration and try to help everybody understand what's actually going on in our legal system with that. When you're going through a divorce, my biggest advice to you is to understand that all of those stressed out feelings that you're having are normal. And my daughter is almost 14 years old and I can tell you the kids really do understand and the very most important thing that your child can do is know that they're loved. And love doesn't come through stuff. It's gonna feel that way if one parent's doing it more than the other. But I realize I'm not in that version of a divorce anymore. We've been divorced for over a decade. It goes away, the kids get older, and the kids know that their parents love them, and that's the most important part. Now, when it comes to the planning, if you know that you're going to be going through a divorce, you need to get all of your paperwork in order. Makes it easier, quicker, and cheaper for you because divorces can get expensive very quickly. You need to have your bank records because, like I said, 50% of the income is yours. You need to know how many retirement accounts are there. You need to know if you have, I mean, Was it Chevron has a credit card for gas? Even that, you need to know who does the gas in your home. You need to have a list of all of your bills because if I'm going to be asking for spousal support, I need to see what your, we look at what your standard of living was 
if we're asking for spousal support. Typically, that is only granted for people who've been married 10 years or more. But we look at the amount of money that was coming into the household, how long that other person has been out of work if they stayed home, and we calculate an amount that's reasonable. And typically, it's granted for two years because we figure, hey, 24 months is enough for you to get trained up and re-enter the workforce. That is not a blanket that happens with everybody. Sometimes you have the multimillionaires and you get the payout for life. Most people aren't dealing with trust fund people when they divorce, so that's just not as common. But you need those numbers and you need those documents because it makes everything go faster. I get to do less discovery if I already have it and I know it's coming in. And then a big question out there is child support. Child support is set by a table by the state. Now, somebody can always pay over what the state recommended amount is. But if you have one child, it's 20%. If you have two kids, it's 25%. If you have three kids, 30%. You just incrementally increase by 5%. If the person has children with somebody else and they reduce it typically by like 2%, 2.5%. And then if the person's paying health insurance for the kids, they'll get a little deduction. But it's done by a table. Now, if it's one of those trust fund families, then typically we'll go over what the recommended child support is. Um, But some things that you need to be thinking about and also need to track and have the paperwork on, are your kids in Campfire Girls? Are they in Boy Scouts? What extracurriculars? Do they do competitive swimming? Because if you don't pay attention and you don't give me those records, then when I draft your divorce decree, it's just going to say, here's your child support, here's the spouse support, here's this. And then you get to the point where, oh, guess what? It's, you know, my daughter's done competitive cheerleading. That's like a $6,000 a semester thing. Registering her for school at the beginning of the year for a public school is over $1,000 because it's the technology fee and the iPad fee and all the notebooks that are required and the school supplies and then they have to have certain shirts. You have to factor all of those expenses. So when I say get nitty gritty, I want you to think of your Netflix account. It's like $7.95 a month, all of that. You need to put it in a binder, and that's how you need to start planning if you find yourself going through a divorce. I could go on and on, but for those of you out there, my best advice for you is to love your kids if you've got them and get organized. Just start getting all of your bills and put them in a binder because for us attorneys, we're looking at numbers, and the emotional stuff sucks. We don't mean to be impersonal, but I'm not going to do you a lot of favors if I break down crying about your sob story. Um, I can do that later over drinks. But when I'm fighting as your attorney, I just need the numbers. I need to know what I'm asking for. So get organized, realize all your feelings. You're supposed to be having them and love your small humans. So on that super happy note, I'm going to go ahead and transition into what's going on in immigration. Anybody, we talked about my feelings on our president the last time I was here. However, there's been a lot of travel bans, a lot of immigration bans, a lot of who's granted a visa. We've had doctors who are coming in. And if they're not being dragged off by United Airlines people, then they're being detained in the airport, not being able to work or report for surgery. So Paul has been very, very active. And one of um, the lawyers that he partners with a lot has started things where we have people working at the airports for people who were dealing with those situations. And now, Paul, I will let you take it away because you're going to be better at this than me. (laughs) Well, okay. So let me give a disclaimer first. I'm not an immigration attorney. I don't pretend to be an immigration attorney. It's not what my practice is about. It's not uh, where I ever envisioned myself uh, doing a lot of work. My first immigration matter that I dealt with was down at the airport a couple of months ago when President Trump uh, introduced his first travel ban. Now, why this was a big deal 
is for a lot of reasons. And not even getting into any kind of political discourse on that, it was the first travel ban was done in such a haphazard, uh, hasty, hasty, poor way that was completely unaware of federalism and how the different organizations work together. And it was done essentially on a Friday evening, and it was implemented in, in such a way that it became a total total mess and essentially i we start having you know lawyers start kind of calling each other on saturday and i was not that enthusiastic about it and to be honest i had some big cases that were coming up that were that i've been dealing with that were really time consuming and i just didn't think that i had the bandwidth to to mess with it and my buddy chris hamilton um he had several people that were just calling him over and over and over about it. And, you know, really kind of tugging on his heartstrings and talking about, you know, what kind of person do you want to be and all this kind of stuff. The and worst. So, the yeah, worst ever. The worst. The worst. Um, <laughs> but then, so, eventually, you know, we, we keep talking about it, we keep circling back, and eventually... Uh, like Saturday night, we decided not to go because we were both probably a little too drunk to be driving out to the airport. But we Wise all decision, yeah, Wise decision. We all, uh, you know, they showed up at my house. There was a couple of lawyers in the car um, Sunday morning, and we just started driving out there. And so all of a sudden, you had essentially all of these attorneys that had no idea about uh, immigration or anything else like that that started showing up to the airport. The reason being is strictly because we they torture us in law school. For any of those of you thinking that it's not three years of hell, thank you. But I promise it's they make you learn all of this. And the one thing that we knew and Paul mentioned is that federalism and how it works. um, You can't issue bans based on something that's considered a discriminatory thing. So you can't say no more women can come in. We're going to hit you because we're going to strike it down. Going yeah, now you're you're discriminating based on gender. And I think that as attorneys, I can speak for myself personally. I was just floored that they actually, not only was it thrown together so quickly, but they threw it out there so quickly because I remember hearing it and then reading it and not because it was funny, but hysterically laughing because I knew it was going to not stand. Like it's just, it's against the federal law and it's called the supremacy clause. It's in that constitution and it says, if it's something that we regulate and we're the federal government and your law differs with ours, we're the parents and you can shut up and go to your room. And that's kind of how th- there were certain pieces of this travel ban that violated, it really was covered by the supremacy clause because the federal government had already said, hey, you can't do that. So it was very interesting to have a federal entity issue something that was against federal law. Sure. You know, and and I... Once again, without even getting into that, you know, the political, like political sides of it, um, and there's all sorts of constitutional arguments for it, and and both of the travel bans so far have been struck down. But at that moment, what it did is it created essentially a black hole where each of the airports turned into their own little mini Guantanamos because. Essentially, you had all of these people that were subject to this enforcement 
that were mid-air. Yeah, they came out while they were in the air. Mid-air that are showing up in the middle of the travel arrangements that are being told that their visas that they had legally applied for and had gone through vetting for or something else like that were being canceled or they were trying to get people to voluntarily sign away their visas. And so what happened is, is the real effect of this was, is people started getting detained and there was nothing for them to be able to 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 get out of the freaking airport. Right, and there's and they're in neither place because they're not yeah. really in the United States, and they're not obviously in their country. And so now, who are we? Where are we? And and whose laws? Yeah, I'm in. You know, it's like just I'm in, limbo. just floating out there. Yeah, and so that's why so many lawyers started showing up because it was just like, wait. This is not America. This is not, you know, this is what, uh, you know, puppet governments do in, you know, the Congo or, you know, some sort of something that is not America. This is not how we operate. We, you know, we, we have, don't get me wrong. There's all sorts of issues and problems that we've had. And, you know, democracy is far from perfect. And it, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. But to essentially hold people in this limbo without any kind of access to rights uh, was a very, very compelling issue for lawyers. And so we had at the airport, um, you know, by 10 o'clock, I think there was about 20 of us. By noon, there was probably 80 or 90 of us. By 2 o'clock, I mean, we had over 100 people, 100 lawyers there. We, we ended up doubling down. We put our card down, got a war room at uh, one of the hotels there at the uh, – the airport and started doing what we could do. We started breaking off into teams, started essentially hammering them uh, with uh, different filings like immediately and started uh, just working the press and started working all these things and started doing all these things. And what we found is that it ended up starting to be kind of this cat and mouse game that if we could find and publicize and, and start really making a big fuss about it, these individuals that are getting essentially stuck. And we're not just talking, we're not talking about people that are illegal. We are talking about people that have gone through a vetting process by our government that are legally here. And some of these people even happen to have citizens in their groups that were being detained. Yes. As well. So we were, we were detaining our own citizens. And it was just a mess. And so that's how I got a little bit involved in this immigration stuff. And what I found is this. I, once again, not a big person who practices immigration law. I've never been paid for an immigration thing in my life. But I was taught some simple values as a kid. And they were to, to treat people well. And that, that we are only as good as we treat the least among us. And th these are things that, that really, really kind of, I bought into as part of America. And, and I proud myself on, you know, being well-traveled and being able to go and visit with many different cultures and many different types of people. And we are a country of immigrants. Yes. We are a country that, that, that every one of us is an immigrant of some sort at some level. Um, and so the, the idea that, that, that 
we would start treating these different people in our country so angrily and with so much bitterness. It's just maddening to me. And so this kind of compiles into what my actions have been this this last week. He was in Austin yesterday working on some of this. Yeah, and, and unfortunately there was a bill in the Senate and it's called Senate Bill 4, and for short, I'll call it SB4. That's what all the kid, the cool kids are calling it, is mm-hmm. SB4. SB4. And uh, essentially, this is a bill that, on its face, the idea of it is, you know, we want to make sure that we, you know, get dangerous, illegal immigrants out of the country. Okay, you know what? Like, as a political goal... Yeah, and as, I think as a goal, period, um, we have prisons for a reason. We sure. don't want violent criminals out, yeah. where, no matter where you're from. So for those of you out there who are more, you know, on, on the right-hand side of this, I really do understand not wanting, first off, we don't want people committing crime here. Anyway, we have prisons and jails for a reason. We have this system for a reason. And I completely understand that terrorism is a very real thing, became a very, very real thing since Paul and I have been alive and, and Kevin, you were alive too. Yeah. Not that much younger than us. Um, <laughs> Child. <laughs> but that when this became a very real, it, it, it's so strange because it's really not a tangible thing. Terrorism is not a tangible thing. So a war on terror is a war on a type of ideal. It's a very difficult one to fight. So when you're talking those issues, I agree with you. I don't want that going on here either. However, I really like my constitution and I like that our country was founded on it and we had people coming and yes, it was give us your poor, your tired, your hungry to be detaining people. And it's, it's straight up on the face of what country you are from. Okay. Well, guess what? My family is native American. I'm related to, I think Cherokee, Kickapoo and some other really violent tribe out there. Um, I have Czechoslovakian relatives. I'm actually second generation American if we were going to initiate a travel ban on European countries, I would not be allowed in. And I'm an attorney here. And if and and so then how far do you let that go? And I think that's the frightening thing for me. And then again, I said it was just comical to me because it was a caricature of all of the worst. It was like Guantanamo plus the Japanese internment camps plus everything in every single airport in the United States. And in defense of the airports, they didn't know what to do either. It's not like somebody trained them. It rolled out so fast. There was no, okay, well, if somebody lands and they have a visa, then we need to direct them into the blue room. There was nothing. And so you had a lot of lawyers who were like, hey, wait a second, we have due process. You get to face your accusers. If we're going to say you're here illegally, there's still got to be some problem. You just, we just can't keep you in the airport. What is that Tom Hanks movie? The Terminal. Yes. We don't want that as a country. At least I don't. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I, I think here's the big problem. All of this stuff has gotten so highly politicized, and there's all of this garbage partisan language that makes us all think that like we're all enemies, and we're not. Like, that's just it. Everybody wants a safe place for their kids. Yes. I don't care who you are. Like, and if you don't, then okay. Even screw the that devil person. loves his children. Yeah. I mean, like it is it is very, very intuitive that we all want a safer place. Okay. It starts boiling down to things. And now this is this this blew my mind. 
All right. Once again, I'm telling you, I'm not an immigration attorney. So I'm learning this stuff, you know, just off the cuff. This is kind of my pro bono giving back to the community stuff, right? Like I, and, and so I'm sitting here the other day and I'm, and I'm all flustered about this Senate bill four because of a lot of problems with it. I think I call it SB four. Cause he's represents. in the middle. SB four, taking it to the limit. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so I'm all flustered about this. And so I, you know, I, as, as dorks tend to do, I start reading and I'm just starting to learn about some stuff. Now this blew my brain, okay? And in immigration issues, when someone is here unauthorized, they're illegal, an illegal immigrant in America. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. First of all, that is one of these garbage partisan terms that has no actual legal place in our country as far as the way that we actually look at it. And the reason being, and I, and I learned this for the first time two days ago, these people that are here, uh, it is not a criminal offense. The Supreme Court of the United States has said that this is an issue of a civil matter. Now, there are some like, uh, you know, crossing the border type stuff that are individual offenses, but just an... The act of being here in and of itself is not... There's no crime. It's not like breaking and entering or aggravated assault. It's just a civil matter because now I'm here and I I don't have what I'm supposed to. Violation, like, like, you know, sitting here in the studio. Well, you know, the studio is a fire hazard, right? Or whatever. It's, It's a civil code. And so... What that does... We are up to code, just for the record. Okay, just say <laughs> um, It's very shiny in here. Yeah, it is very nice. With his Super Nintendo controllers. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for you're, you're that You're welcome. I'm, I'm happy to help. Uh, and, and so the civil versus criminal distinction is huge, right? And you know, I had thought, and I have heard the term illegal immigrant, and it really, let's not say illegal immigrant, it's illegal alien. Uh, I've been hearing that my entire life, and I was just like... You know, I thought like this was like this is a big thing. This is like this is a big crime. Like these people are these are this is akin to being a murderer. There's these are illegal aliens. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is like insane, right? Like, and so, uh, and then you find out that they say illegal, and that's really the that's th- that's the misnomer because yeah. it's really unauthorized. You yeah. didn't get the right paperwork to, to a removable to pass alien. That's they, right. are re- they are a removable alien. And just the fact that you're an, an alien here in America uh, that is past your, your due date for leaving, uh, that is not a crime. That is a civil violation. So we get this rhetoric and this these terms of just rubble, 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 you know, like and all this like anger behind this. And it's used because. It is so easy to get people mad at each other for like these tribalistic things. Like it's easy when someone doesn't look like me to be like, this person is an other. You're They're a Packers fan. Yeah. We can't be friends. <laughs> you son of a rubble, rubble, rubble. <laughs> you know, yes. and, but these, these are, these are perpetual things. And these are the things that people play off of. And, and when you have politics, that essentially play off of maybe kind of these 
worst characteristics of people. And I think Senate Bill 4 was kind of written with that in mind, right? It, it, like this, the worst characteristics. This, this was written in mind essentially to not solve a problem. So it create a false flag issue and then ram down something that is universally not wanted by the people it affects, by the people that have to implement it, and by the people that have to pay for it. So, And it's really like them wanting to give a whole lot of police power to every... What Senate Bill 4 would do is give a lot of power to people who have not previously had power to detain illegal people. Yes, and so, so let's, let's talk about that. Okay, so... On the face of it, we don't want these illegal aliens who are coming in here, taking our jobs, screwing our people over, raping all the people, being all the 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 deplorable bad hombres here in Texas. (laughs) Okay, so so okay, I get it. Like it, it is easy to 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 say that that a certain population is the problem, but that is not how we go about legislating things or it shouldn't be what we should do is actually look at the stats what are the actual incidences of things uh which happen to be this is interesting a stat for you did you know that in the uh latino community um there is actually uh i believe it's one third or 40 percent of the uh criminalized violent crimes that are uh, reported on, you know, essentially a variety of different folks. So, so it, there are statistically less violent crimes coming out of that community than other communities in uh, America right now. But let's let's drill down to this SB four issue. So, all this stuff, that, and and so this got to be a huge campaign thing in Texas, especially for these hyper partisan districts that all this crazy gerrymandering where, you know, they're going to punish essentially these, you know, liberal jerks that are allowing all of these horrible, evil people to stay in America that are ruining America. And what it was going to do is said, so ICE, the uh, immigration control enforcement, I believe, Mm -hmm. or something like that. Once again, not an immigration attorney. This is not my wheelhouse. So I'm learning this all as everybody else is. So ICE has what it's called a detainer. So when this is for people that they believe are here illegally, they have overstayed their their welcome uh, on their visa, or they have... They don't uh, have the wristband to get into the party. Yes, they do not. There is no love in the club uh, for these folks. And so you've got these ICE detainers, and, and it's the, the idea is that essentially these are from the federal government, and... They are asking, it's permissive, that because it's a state government, uh, they're asking the state government, hey, when we have these detainers, let us know, because you know, these are people that you know, are here illegally, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and federally we want to know about it, yeah, and, so and, just tattle. Yeah, and, and a lot of times there's, you know, there's violent offenses that are associated with this. In Texas, there has been a 90 Nine percent compliance with these federal detainers. Okay, so let's think about this. When they're arguing this, this Senate Bill Four, they're asking for a massive expansion of federal 
people being able to come in and get the uh, people um, use all of our state police offices to enforce it. And so that means it is a unbridled expansion of federal power to police and essentially uh, to... um, I think it's just a way of taking the federal government has rules saying, if you're in violation of this, we can deport you. So now they want to hook up with the state and say, hey, state, whenever you find these people, and we're already complying with it 99%, but you need to tell us. But then what they're wanting to do is pass that federal power that we have for the federal government onto our state officials, which is basically giving somebody like a park ranger, because they're actually a state official or a peace officer, the ability to do what ICE does and detain anybody that they have the suspicion of being here illegally. I realize that I am now talking fast, but we're going to wind this up and then we will come back one more time, I think. Uh, we're actually about 10 minutes over for the entire <gasps> show. So, well, so, but you guys were on a roll. I didn't time. want to break it up. Next time, I will come back and talk more about the immigration issues and human trafficking. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you listen next week. Part of town.